This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation. And we are your hosts, Martin Dyson and Brian Hoadley. For new listeners, each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Martin and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Brian and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations, with minimal editing allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. So I think the argument for more diversity is a very strong one because with that comes the adaptation and the kind of more favorable look towards change because change is part of all these groups' experiences more so than the kind of Western white male, which, let's be honest, the world has been designed for and by. In this episode, Brian and I are in conversation with Ola Grotst, a listener who reached out to share her perspective, and we realised we just had to bring her into our exploration. Ola helps us delve into the intricacies of identity, power dynamics, and the transformative potential of liminal spaces. She describes herself as a data philosopher, a concept and articulation I find fascinating. Using data not just as raw information, but a medium or lens to understand and interpret deeper societal and human issues, behaviours and global societal shifts. She philosophizes about the implications, meanings and narratives that data can reveal. We discuss the challenges posed by some of those global shifts like AI and climate change. Ola reflects on the feelings of lost control experienced by many in today's rapidly changing landscape. Yet amidst the complexities, she finds a glimmer of hope in the quiet voices championing new ways of thinking. She emphasises the significance of timing in the emergence of new ideas and the role of identity in various communities. Our conversation also touches on the irony for her and for Brian and I of exploring liminal spaces, noting how such an exploration can turn our own personal journey into a reflection of those very spaces. This conversation really digs into the changing nature of leadership and the power of liminality. We're really looking forward to hearing what you got out of this conversation. So let's dive into it now. I hit record, even though this might not be bits that we use, just so it's actually, we don't have this kind of moment where we suddenly go, oh, and now we're recording. <laughs> and we'll find a way to edit into the conversation. That's normally what we do rather than kind of go, this is the beginning of the podcast like that. <laughs> is that um, your so, beginning um, of the podcast yeah. voice? Yeah, yeah, Pat, it's like it you have be a phone voice. <laughs> we had this whole conversation about different voices and different accents that uh, that we were going to potentially Yeah, have. yeah. In this conversation, yes, I would talk about all my my different Scottish and English and American accents. It's a difficult one because when we recorded intros and outros initially, we had <laughs> to record them lots of times because I found that I I kept be I kept going. Hi, I'm Brian. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, are you though? <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm not. Is that actually Brian? <laughs> this is great. This is great. This is like falls into the whole identity piece, how we kind of assume these different identities that supposedly Absolutely. we need to take. And that includes different voices too. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, people have a phone voice, yes. right? You hear, yeah, my wife definitely has a phone voice. I think I have a phone voice as well. That was part of my story about accents is like, depending who I was talking to on the phone, a different accent would come out. But but we also have that kind of, yeah. And then there's like presenter voice and there's, yeah, there's all sorts of voices. They're all identities, yes, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> We've done a bit of intros over email and things, but Ola, what Brian and I are doing, especially now, we've kind of done this pivot on the podcast yeah which has been an experience to go through brian it has <laughs> we're gonna go oh we might have been doing this wrong and we've opened ourselves up much more now and it came at the same time that you reached out uh, exactly the same time that you reached out literally you reached out and said hey thank you by the way saying i've been listening to the podcast and i was like Wow, but you call yourself a data philosopher. That's really interesting. What's that about? 
just at the time where Brian and I were going, we just need to find people who identify with operating in liminal spaces and find out what's going on with them and hear from them. Because we kind of had this theory in our head about a book that might have a certain structure. And we were beginning to talk to people as if that structure was true and needed to be true. And we were, yeah. And there were useful conversations, definitely. But not as useful as these kind of conversations, I think. So that's what we're really looking forward to getting into with you, Ola, today. Maybe you could start with a little bit of... So you, you kind of reached out and said, hey, I'm a data philosopher. And I just immediately bit and went, okay, what's that? And then we got into this massive conversation about all sorts of things around identity. Maybe you could start with just explaining what, why do you identify as a data philosopher? And what is, how has that come about for you in the context of change, transformation in liminal spaces? Yeah, I, I get that a lot. Actually, a reaction to my title, mainly, what's that? <laughs> But yeah, it came in a place where I kind of surrendered everything that I was and everything that I knew at the end of my my research, my previous research. And I, at that point, I had been a, a director in a number of companies running teams and, and really successfully kind of working in an innovation and, and technology space. And, and then I did this thing when I did the research questioning that space and, oh boy, did it change everything. And so I had a bit of an identity crisis at that point and going, everything that I know, everything that I knew up until this point, it doesn't make sense anymore to me. And what I had discovered that subconsciously or consciously, probably a bit of both, I had always been kind of in the space between technology and people being uh, often one of the only or very few women working in the kind of technology and, and a very kind of uh, male-dominated spaces. I always had this sensibility where uh, I, I was, at that point, I was calling myself an interpreter, a translator between the technical and the human talking about liminal space, I very much operated in that space. And then as I kind of finished my research and I was thinking, who am I? And this idea of I was, I had this incredible amount of data that I was working with, trying to kind of look at the origin stories and trying to really understand the spaces that we were embarking on, both on the kind of digital and, and human social space. And so this idea of data philosopher as this person that questions these spaces and really looks at both ends, relationships between digital, between artificial intelligence, between data and kind of a social context. And so that's where the name came about. And, and I am sitting in this space quite comfortably at the moment. And yeah. It's obviously got me to have a conversation with you, which is amazing. Cool. It's it's one of these things that I I will I immediately connected with the term data philosopher, and I wasn't sure why. I think maybe because <clears throat> Brian and I had recently had a conversation with Kenneth Bowles as who's a kind of future future ethicist about 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 futures i guess he's come from a design background but then gone into ethics without formally being a philosopher educated person and so we started talking a lot about about the ethics behind technology or the ethics that needs to be in technology and, and in data and i found something quite nicely fluid about the word philosophy being used with such a word that is often seen as so hard and fixed as data. And I really just loved that counterpoint and that kind of immediately spoke to me as something that would be an interesting thing to explore in in transitional states, I, I guess. we When we started to look into this together, talked briefly about it before um, getting together on this recording, you were speaking a little bit about your work with looking into leadership and how I get oh, you're going to sum this up much better than me, and I'd love you to. But how 
how identity and leadership are intertwined, especially in the context of what we're all facing into now, the big changes that are going on around us right now. I'd love it if you could unpack a little bit for us what what you're looking into around that and what you're learning and observing about identity and leadership. And there is a connection, I think, for you about, about data and how that impacts things. And I, I got a sense of it when we were talking, but I just thought there's a heck of a lot more to go into. And I would really love to hear more from you about it. Yeah, sure. It's quite a, an interesting and complex story. And it kind of circles back to where we are currently, which is the thing that I'm exploring in my doctorate research at the moment is this identity crisis that leaders kind of found themselves in where you've got this really shifting complex of digital, of inclusivity, of sustainability, where suddenly leaders have to be digitally minded and often digitally fluent, inclusive and sustainably focused. And often they come from different disciplines altogether. They might not come from any of these disciplines. So they, they have to take up on this very strong identity in what they say, the language they use, the, the practices, the decisions that they're making. And it has come very quickly. This is, it really unfolded probably since COVID, where suddenly these, these pressures have become real for a lot of leaders. But my research really goes back to the origin stories of identity. And feel free to edit this because it might get a bit <laughs> long. But I really want to kind of all right. Just give you a, a bigger context. We do minimal <laughs> editing on this, so it's cool. <laughs> because it goes back 100 years, really, when we, and, and it's quite uncanny, when anthropologist Margaret Mead in kind of 20s, 30s, 1920s, 1930s, first started looking at this idea of the identity theory, the construction of self. And she was looking through at it through the concept of gender, that she discovered that we are not, that the idea of men and masculinity and women and femininity wasn't something that we were born with, that it was constructed and that it was curated through within a social context. And then that became quite a, a big thing once the kind of idea of leadership in organizational management started surfacing. So there were these tests devised, like a sex role inventory test, where you would look at the feminine and the masculine kind of traits. And so the masculine trait was something like act acts like a leader or makes decisions easier or doesn't get hurt easily. <laughs> like literally, this was a kind of a scientific qualifying of what's masculine and what's feminine. And obviously, the idea was that feminine was always the polar opposite. So feminine was like gentle, sensitive, it gets easily hurt. And so these identities were placed on general public, but also on leaders. Only leaders had to be the extreme versions of these because obviously you're, you're the personification of everything that, that is expected of you. This idea of alpha male and alpha female came as these kind of extreme versions of what leaders need to become. And I remember there's a one a paper that was released in 2007 describing alpha male as these incredibly potent, strong, loved by Wall Street <laughs> characters. Little did they know that 2008, it was be like loved by Wall Street, hated by everyone else. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's these kind of idea of these designed identities of leaders has permeated throughout the 20th century into the 21st century. And now, 100 years later, we're kind of looking back and going, oh, we need, it doesn't work anymore. We can't talk about inclusivity in those contexts anymore. And in fact, we can't talk about diverse leadership in these contexts anymore. It's and also, we are really discarding a whole human experience because we know that both men and women have masculine and feminine traits, if we can even talk about like robbing men of sensitivity and emotionality and kind of embodied behaviors 
it's just giving them just a, a sliver of what it means to be human. And the same for women, just kind of putting them in the category of emotions only and no logic. <laughs> it's again, it's it has robbed us as well as a society of so much wisdom and so much learning that we could have absorbed throughout the years. So it is really this, we're in this interesting space of unlearning, relearning, or as Henri Bergson would say, becoming and unbecoming. So it's kind of more about a process, about fluidity, about accessing these liminal spaces than about fixed certain identity of being a leader. Do you think the do you think that things like our recent experience with pandemic, which we're really still not over, <clears throat> we're not over the repercussions of the impact that's had on society and business and, and everything else? Do you think that these events that occur, <clears throat> financial crisis, maybe the financial crash, pandemic, that they challenge this kind of heteronormative masculine <clears throat> command and control? way of being and therefore they cause they cause an undoing of those structures for a period of time it's almost like these things happen in a period of time and then there's that reflex they kind of it's elastic it kind of snaps back but what it snaps back to isn't maybe quite what it was before and i'm thinking of things like again remote working is a is a big topic point using using things like Zoom and Zoom saying they want their people back a couple of days a week. What I'm thinking in that is just this sense of it, it challenge these kinds of constructs challenge challenge the idea of command and control, which challenge the idea of this kind of masculine sense of control. And masculine, I, I don't mean male, but just yeah. <clears throat> and so there's a sense of there's a sense of things being really incredibly disrupted in this space. And so we end up in a very, a very large liminal bubble where things aren't what they were before. They're not what they're going to be at some point where we're kind of all in the middle and everybody's scratching their head trying to figure out <clears throat> where do these things go? How do they impact how I work? I, and I also wonder sometimes you look at leaders and you think, leaders that that run matrixed organizations it feels like they've they've taken a step back a little bit they've learned to they've learned to be more open to be more collaborative to be more cross-functional in the way they work whereas leaders in command and control organizations tend to evidence that very strong sense of externalized masculinity in in what they do they need to have control over the situation the organization the people the structures everything so I just wonder, how much impact do you think these events have had? 2008, 2009, we had the financial crash, which of course challenges the idea of male financial dominated masculinity. <laughs> we have the pandemic, which really upends everything for everybody and nobody knows where to go. And it feels like it's almost like successive pebbles in a pond. You get these ripple effects that build one on the next. And, and I kind of don't think we were over 2008, 2009 when things like pandemic came along. So I think the repercussions are bigger. They're starting to get bigger and the impacts and effects are bigger. How does that figure into what you're saying and what you think? Yeah, it's maybe I'll answer it in, in, in kind of two, two strands. The first one is what I'd say the kind of the research and, and the science has observed in terms of, I think the 2008 financial crisis was more of starting to question the systems within. I, I don't think it hurt the leadership that much yet. It was more about questioning the systems within which we operate the pandemic gave permission for leaders to be vulnerable. And that was huge. That was huge because for, suddenly it enabled men to access their emotions and vulnerability without being judged or without being called weak. <laughs> and for women, it gave them a space where they finally could be themselves, where they finally didn't have to apologize for being who they are. So it, it kind of brought a bit of a leveling 
space where we could suddenly be humans. And when I have talked to leaders in, in my interviews and for my current research, they all say pandemic was at a point where they had to, where they had this kind of moment of deconstruction of who they are, what it means to be them in a particular setting. Yeah. But also it, it kind of, we were all suddenly showing our context. We were, it wasn't just us in the suits. It was the dogs and the families and the background. Yeah. It was suddenly we brought our personalities. We brought things that you wouldn't, it was like, don't bring your home into your work, right? Don't bring your emotions. Yeah. And suddenly it was this space where everything that we were taught not to do, we were doing it. And it was fine. And yeah. it, it's interesting, isn't it? All these constructs that, that existed within the the built environment that was the office were taken away. Brian, I reckon there's probably elements of command and control in those offices as well. Not everybody has their boss or their boss's boss sat on the same floor in an open desk environment with them. Many of them have got offices or are on higher floors or in different offices. And you didn't have any of those constructs that were kind of subtly or not subtly in the background reinforcing all these things that you say or as, they, as you say they started decades and decades ago and then it, that was all kind of taken away and I think there's something also about them being put back in your home that had positive and negative impacts for people and as individuals I know certainly people on my team had very negative impacts if they were single people for example that was a very constraining thing but for those who were then spending more time with their partners or their family, you were forced into that context for a lot more. It kind of, it, it brought a whole bunch of life is more of this than it is the office, but we just spend a heck of a lot of time in the office. Which which also had pros and cons for some couples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. the divorce rate um, increased likewise. <laughs> Crazy percentage. I was staying in Citizen M hotels this week and they have this book and it's a it's a brilliant book about um about marriage, um about lifelong partnership. And it's um it basically says why you will marry the wrong person. <laughs> That's what it's called. And it deconstructs the idea of romantic yeah. love versus it. So I just thought that was kind of, yeah, maybe that was the book yeah. everybody needed to read <laughs> during the pandemic. You are in the right place. You've just got the wrong notions <laughs> yeah. of it, actually, That which is quite interesting. I think that's the thing. We have everything in ourselves. We had the wrong notions of what the right things were. But is it not ironic that your comment brian about zoom that zoom is asking people to come back to the office where they made so much money out of people working remotely it's just it just strikes me as such a funny heart, uh, irony it's, it's it seems it seems kind of antithetical how do you sell that i if if i'm sales and marketing i'm thinking no <laughs> don't put that message uh, out there and um, that's the brand gone down the toilet <laughs> Do you think it's good to be in the... Wait a minute. <laughs> what do we do again? I know. It's, it does make me laugh. It's, it's been funny watching them scramble now um, to respond to that. Blog post went up the other day about it where they were... They literally kind of deconstructed point by point why. And it was very much a kind of post-rationalization of a decision that had been made <laughs> to ask people to come into the office. Uh, there was somebody on the news this morning from Zoom who really, she'd been asked the question, but didn't really quite answer the questions she was being asked about why are you doing it? And she gave some very lighthearted, not very convincing responses to the journalist's question. And so it is, these things are funny, but I think this is part of the elasticity that I was talking about earlier of things snapping back, right? So we see articles. There, there was a there was something on LinkedIn the other day uh, that somebody had responded to somebody posting an article that was in Forbes, I believe it was, about, about remote work being less efficient. And the guy did the work to deconstruct the article. So he went back and read the sources for the article 
And he deconstructed the article and he said, the problem is the, the headlines that are thrown out are these, oh God, remote work is terrible. It's bad, the results in reduction. When you go back and read the sources that the article was written on, you realize that actually that wasn't the point any of those articles was making at all. And, and then you start looking at some of the people that are engaged in some of the activity around return to work. And you find out that maybe their organization's investments, pension funds, whatever, are heavy, heavily leveraged in um, building companies, construction companies, things like that, where they're losing value. And you have to really now get to the root cause of a lot of these things because it feels like it feels like sources are really more important than ever now for a lot of those discussions. They've always been important, but in trying to ascertain whether remote working, hybrid working is a good thing or not, you really have to do your own work yeah. if you want to make decisions based on those things. Yeah, and kind of coming back to your question and when you were talking about this elasticity that we, we're returning back to some of these old behaviors, I look at it through the lens of power and control. And I think what's happening, one of the reasons that might, and this is just a, a, a pure hypothesis at this stage, what might be happening is that we are losing control in a lot of spaces at the moment. There is this destabilizing effect of what's happening in, on the global and local scale in terms of climate and climate impact and AI and the, the kind of impact that's bringing as well on people's jobs and, and organizations and investments, etc. Et and I think when we feel destabilized, you go back to your old tricks. <laughs> so you go, oh, I need to have a control over something. And a lot of organizations feel like they're not in control. And the only thing that they can feel like they're in control is their people. So they're like, oh, no, let's get them back in so we can feel like we've got things under control. And it's completely irrational. And in fact, coming back to this interview and Zoom's response, it's reverse engineering, trying to find the logic to an emotional behavior. And one of the incredible uh, scientists and thinkers of, of the 20th and 21st century, uh, Daniel Kahneman, he did, in, I think in the 70s, 80s, he did a, a big study that he ended up uh, winning a, a Nobel Prize for uh, in behavioral economics. And he was studying economists and studying the rationale and, and the kind of logic behind their decisions. And what he discovered was that majority of the decisions made by economists were illogical, they were emotional. And he didn't coin that phrase, somebody else, I don't know who, but said that for all these years, we thought that we were logical beings that occasionally use emotions, but it turns out that we're emotional beings that occasionally use logic. And if you look at the current state, it's completely illogical to be investing in fossil fuels right now. And yes, here we are and killing the planet that is <laughs> our home. And yet here we are, the carbon footprint is increasing, the uh, emissions are increasing. We're not really handling very handling this whole thing very well. And it's all because of the kind of narratives and stories and emotions. Losing a lot of money is an emotional process for some of these organizations, oil and gas. We are driven through, even though these identity stereotypes of men not being emotional, we're all emotional. We're all emotional beings because we are humans. And logic often pays very little part in this construction of decision-making that we're, we're doing. And it's, why don't we just do case by case, organization by organization? And some, I, I work for, for a company and we have a working unbound policy, which essentially says you can work anywhere, <laughs> anytime, as long as you, you do your hours. And we have offices in London and all over the world. And, and people still come to the offices. They come to the offices because for the kind of social and interactive part, because they see the value. They don't come to the offices because somebody tells them to do. And giving kind of autonomy and freedom and treating people like adults, 
not like kids that you have to head back to the office. It's just much more mature and much more respectful way of dealing with your whole organization. I think regardless, it's not the come back to the office, don't come back. It's how you deal with it. How do you, how you do it? And saying everybody has to come back to the office. It's just, I, I don't think it's, you're in the wrong century. <laughs> so do you think, going back to something you said about power and control, and there's, and maybe also back to kind of some fundamentals of human, some fundamentals of human nature, that more of us in the world than more of us in the world are not comfortable with change. We we are wired as human beings to seek certainty, shortcuts. That's why we're a soft tissue pattern recognition machine, right? And that's, that's what my psychology courses uh, I studied at university told, taught me. Everything is about pattern recognition. That's where bias comes from. That's where stereotype comes from. They're all shortcuts so that our brain doesn't have to make too much effort. And then because we want patterns, we want certainty, we want regular consistency and coherency to these things. Therefore, my kind of like construct of theory is that therefore we seek certainty, we seek control to exert that certainty, and then the world makes sense to us, right? So we're trying to make sense of the world because we can ask questions why. So most of us are not comfortable with anything that goes against that. The fact that constructs existed that put people in boxes propagated that more was useful to those people for whom the boxes were beneficial <laughs> and suppressive to those who, for whom the boxes weren't beneficial. And then that kind of replicates again and again. And you just, the, the more powerful boxes keep taking control, mm. right? And everything's kind of upended. I think 2008 was like nearly, but government stepped in before it got too messy. And it, and it looked really bad and messy, but actually there was a huge amount of control in and amongst a solid network of people in the financial industry, including the government, and it stopped it being more than it could be. But you couldn't control the COVID pandemic in the same way. So then the government had to step in for reasons that were humanitarian reasons, as well as systemic reasons. As you said, Ola, people were forced into contexts that upended all of their certainties forced them to face things at the end. So we had this real, I felt like we had this moment where people were absolutely in and living in change and in uncertainty. And we were beginning to see that actually had benefit and options and possibilities. I'm a little bit worried that actually the control freaks are back and that they found just enough ways to bring that certainty back to themselves, and they're the ones that hold most power and influence and control. I'm a bit concerned about that. I know that there's an argument that says, well, if you go the other way, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. And we as human beings are going to avoid short-term pain rather than long-term gain. Uh, is there anything that's come up for you in your exploration of leadership? Who deals with this kind of situation better? If we as a mass of people tend to like to go towards certainty as human beings. There are people for whom uncertainty is awesome and they love it, right? And there are people who, even if they like it or don't like it, have had to deal with it nonetheless. We talked about people that have been living in transitional states because of their identities in any case. Are there kind of traits that you've seen in leadership that we should be leaning on and encouraging right now or people that we should be bringing to the fore because actually this is a time for a different type of leadership? Yeah, thank you for asking this question. It's it's a really complex one, but the kind of direction I think that we need to bring in is that the direction of inclusivity, the diversity aspect, because people that have been marginalized from the kind of leadership conversation, women, different ethnicity groups, different kind of gender spectrums are really the people that have always been in the flux of change, always had to redesign themselves, reconfigure themselves just to be, just to cope. Even if we look at women from the kind of biological point of view, change happens in our bodies every month. We 
go through change every month because it's an embodied experience. We become much more configuring ourselves and oh my goodness, the, the amount of different identities and personas I had to create to be able to do my job or to be able to just be successful in, in, in whatever context I was working. It wasn't like, oh, I came out of school and there you go. I just, this is me now. And I think, again, for trans community, that's, again, something that, that they have to reconstruct and go through in incredible lengths. Same with different ethnicities, different groups that, that, that kind of either work in different countries and learn languages. And again, I came from Poland and I speak multiple languages and whichever language I speak, I, there is a different persona that comes with that as well. So I think the argument for more diversity is a very strong one because with that comes the adaptation and the kind of more favorable look towards change because change is part of these groups' experiences more so than the kind of Western white male, which, let's be honest, the world has been designed for and by. Yeah. But I think within the current context, we also have... You know, in the, in the past, we were in control and, and there was there was a market and, and that was kind of what was running the show. But now we've got these other stakeholders that we haven't had before, like nature. Market falls flat <laughs> if you have climate crisis-induced situations like the fires in, in Europe that had completely consumed... Greece and Spain for a few months, you can't control that. You, you can't, no amount of, of power will control that. And I think we are going to, this is going to become a more, more of a reality for us in the future. I don't think the stability that we have known, I don't think that's going to be there for much longer. I think there is other stakeholders that are playing part that we have to take into consideration. The, there's reports coming around water shortage, like within the next two to three years, we'll experience water sh shortage. What will that do to our structures, our organizations, global ones, because it's nothing is local anymore. I think change is going to be the new normal. <laughs> and I think learning from biomimicry, learning from natural systems, the monocultures are the ones that are, will always struggle when extreme conditions come. And it's the diverse cultures of, plant life and natural life that really thrive, that help each other. And I think this is what we need to kind of bring into organizations and our, our leadership here to diverse culture in order to really thrive and to survive in these extreme conditions that, that will come. Brian, some of what Ola's saying there is making me think about other conversations we've had about edges of systems and and it's making me think oh as you were saying that with the word monoculture which i haven't heard used in a while um, i'm surprised i haven't heard it used in a while but because it's such a good descriptor i suddenly started to imagine a, a monoculture as being one that has very hard edges very defined edges because that's what it tries to do it, it not on, not as an individual on purpose, but as a system, as a group. It, it, you reinforce the monoculture. You create harder edges, so it's much clearer defined. Brian, we were having a chat about softer edges to systems and what happens at the edges of different systems and the the necessity to kind of live in those spaces a bit more. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. We were talking about edge effect abundance <clears throat> and this idea of these systems coming together. What happens at the edges of those systems? And in, in, in talking about this, if you think about if if you think about human centered versus planet centered, right? 
the edges of those two systems coming together is kind of what we're talking about. As, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think that our systems, because they're human-centered and they're based on human consumption of things that humans produce, doesn't take into account the impacts or effects on the planet, right? And so that's not built into that's not built into our monetary systems, right? So that consumption doesn't take into account that it needs to factor in the cost of <clears throat> these things that are occurring to the planet. And therefore, the impacts those things will then have back on our systems, right? So it's really interesting to, when you talk about things, things will get progressively worse because we haven't changed, we haven't changed our systems to encapsulate the whole world, the whole planet. We haven't changed our financial systems, our monetary systems, capitalism to take into account all of these other systems that we coexist with that are being impacted by the fact that we're not taking them into account, right? It rem- I think when you were talking last, I think it was last week or recently, Martin, about you know, Kate Rayworth, donut economics, that sense of thriving. I think this is kind of where things like that start to come in and you start to think we need economic systems that where it's not about it's not about perverse profit. It's not about all wealth being centered in certain specific areas. It needs to be we need to be thinking about what do we need to survive to remain on this planet and to keep this planet thriving, right? And for us to thrive within the context of that. But right now our systems are so far from that. And any discussions about it at a global level, they're just discussions. You read UN papers on these things and you think the evidence is there, but it's going to take, it takes big systems to make that change. Governments, whole government, large scale governments need to be involved in making that change. And when we have things like Rishi Sunak granting hundreds or hundreds of oil drilling licenses, it's antithetical to what we've been talking about in terms of the UK being a leader in climate change, right? Yeah, maybe we're going to be a leader, but now in the wrong way. <laughs> so I don't know. I It's just, it's it, there's just so much, th- this whole idea of edge effect abundance and, and, and the edges of systems coming together, we're still living too much at the core. We're not examining those edges nearly enough and looking for those innovative solutions and looking for a way forward. And I think that's where the way forward exists. It exists there, not in the core, because the cores are too deeply systemic. They're too ingrained in history and a way of doing things. Yeah, you're right. And I don't have the answer to that either. I think it's something that many of us asking these questions struggle with, and I don't know what it will take. I don't particularly think it's going to come from the government. I think it's going to come from unexpected places, from the edges, <laughs> because the governments are not on the edges. The governments are very much in yeah. the core of it. And I think mm. it's not going to come from the core. I think it's going to come from the edge inward. But I think where I find hope is that at least now this is visible. At least now, if uh, Rishi Sunak uh, gave 100 licenses five years ago, nobody would but an eyelid. <laughs> uh, and now this is mm. a conversation and people are realizing the implications of it. It might not seem like much, but I think the consciousness shift, it's the first step to change. Um, yeah. I mean, it's almost by, so we, there was another thing that Brian and I have been talking about in terms of exploring all of these topics is, especially around, as I said at the top of the episode, that we've been looking at this pivot and how we've been thinking about things and we were already too boxy in our thinking. You, I, as designers, the one thing we hate is when people give us a brief within it, with a solution embedded inside it or everybody's rushing to find the answer and we were almost rushing to find the answer. And there are no single answers to this and that's one of the things you have to be comfortable with is the fact that it isn't going to be all boxed up and presented as this, here is this package open up this package and all the answers are inside it. That's not to say there aren't answers, but they exist on these edges. And I think it's a, a beautiful point you've just made, Ola, which is you're already moving towards the edge if you're listening to this. If you're having a conversation about this, if you're thinking about this, you're already moving towards the edge. You're already existing a little bit outside of the center. 
And if more people do that, then there are more questions and there's more understanding and there's more comfort with being in those spaces. And then I think the other thing that I thought was really interesting about just listening to you and the work and the research you've been doing about leadership is that idea of the, the fact that there are many people in the world who have had to exist and navigate and they're personally for themselves um, through transition and change and uncertainty of that and volatility in that. Whereas a lot of the established leadership of large organizations has existed within a space of putting control in to try and exert certainty where that is just fakery and you're kidding yourself if you think that's in a long-term scale, you're really doing that. And so that says to me, we have the spaces and we have the people that we need. Um, the question is, how do we convene those conversations more? How do we encourage them more so that more people are more comfortable being in that space, I, th- I think? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I think, it, it, again, let's shift from the kind of monoculture thinking, a single solution to, to diverse thinking, to, to kind of a field of solutions, a field of voices, a field of tools and stories storytelling is the the most ancient way of of capturing people's imagination and shifting them to a new space and as we have this we're in this era of synthetic factory manufacturing of information i can't even call it a story what's happening with with, um, chat gpt and and so on i think that's only showing us what a value a good and captivating story of a real human being that has done the work, done the journey, and has some wisdom to impart, how powerful that can be. And obviously, you mentioned Kate and many others that are kind of rising up and really captivating people's imagination and really kind of coming to the forefront where um, 10 years ago, where she released her book, nobody really (laughs) talked about it. And now suddenly 10 years later or so, she is the kind of the rock star of economy at the moment and and the kind of new idea of what economy can be. So it's the timing plays a big part. And I think it's important not to think that in these moments of, of stillness where maybe seems like nothing is happening, that there isn't this kind of incubation and bubbling of the new force, of the new idea, of the new imagination. And when that comes, again, on the edges in liminal spaces, like these spaces are really invisible because media and and the popular stories are just the, the, the kind of exaggerated, loud voices that are loud for five seconds and then there isn't really anything else. To, to that. It's kind of what gives me hope and, and I have to stay hopeful because studying and investigating these three contexts can be really depressing. <laughs> yeah. What's happening in artificial intelligence at the moment and and with large language models and what's happening with with sustainability and again in a space of inclusivity and diversity and, and justice. There is a lot that that really is disheartening, but I have to also listen to these kind of still quiet voices of these individuals and groups in 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 those liminal spaces in, in the edges that are gonna and, and are coming to the surface with new ways of thinking and, and doing and being. So. Ola, I've got a, I've got a kind of question for you, but it's for Brian and I, but it's also for anybody that's listening and kind of carrying on with the spirit of listening, being in the conversation, finding the edges, which is, I think, the space that we want to create on this podcast that we can hear from many different people is, where would you point us to next? Brian and I specifically, but also for people who are listening into this, what are some things that you think might be interesting to explore or areas that people might, whether it's a book or whether it's a another podcast, whether it's a theme or something that, that you think might be interesting for listeners to explore or where Brian and I might 
explore next. And it's something we're going to be asking every single one of our guests as we go forward. Where to next? Try and navigate the edges by passing from person to see where the next conversation is. I love that question because this is, you know, as we had our conversation before about mystery and being the detective looking for clues, which is the way that I I shape my research. And it has been incredible because as you enter the mystery, the clues keep coming because you're in a space of openness, your space in a space of asking questions. And it's incredibly exciting and it's incredibly scary because you don't have the plan and the kind of defined X, Y, Z that this is where I'm going. It's a little bit more open. So as you are on your mystery, I there's a, a couple of places that I would want to direct you in. And we speak about Obviously, there's a lot of conversation about intelligence and what what it even means with artificial intelligence. And I have been really learning a lot from biomimicry and the natural intelligence of the natural world. And people like Leanne Gorison, um, who's written, in fact, her book is called Natural Intelligence and incredible and scientifically based. She is a a biologist. Incredible, insightful book about different types of intelligence that we really need to learn about and access and learn from in order to build our world and organizations are are kind of reframing the way we can live um, and be in the future. So again, the idea of kind of systemic biomimicry and then looking at the living systems for inspiration for the way we build our future world, because at the moment we're still hanging on to the ideas from the 20th century, from the kind of industrial revolution, which we know aren't work for humanity. They work for 1% of people, but not necessarily for the rest of us. And the other direction, more towards kind of the technological, philosophical aspect, I would recommend Jane's Bridal and Ways of Being. So he looks, while Leanne Gorison is looking from the kind of nature perspective of recalibrating, reshaping our thinking and our understanding of the world. He kind of goes in the direction of of the more artificial intelligence and the kind of the mechanistic ways of capturing our reality and playing it back to us in the form of AI. And again, reimagining what that could look like in a kind of more healthy and more intelligent way. So they're kind of a bit extreme, but actually they're really complementing. But it's just understanding the world that is being shaped by Silicon Valley versus the world that is being shaped by nature and how we can kind of create something that is is much, much more aligned with who we are as human beings as we discover who we are as human beings. So th- these are kind of the two two modes <laughs> that I would direct you towards. What about you? What, where shall I go next? I don't know whether how directly relevant this for you and your mystery in terms of the research that you're doing. I'm not sure, but this has come up for me a couple of times in this conversation and in some other conversations we've had recently, which is another... I don't know whether it's identity, but another kind of human assumption and certainly something that drives the economies in the system right now is growth. And I've constantly been inspired by the work of Joe McLeod, who used to be a design director at Us2. And after he left, started exploring the ends of experiences and why nobody designs for an end. And although Joe is not explicitly exploring how things, government systems might take a part in that, he's actually focusing in on the actions that people who design products and services can do to design an end to those products and services. He's going right into the the heart of the problem, which is where things are made. 
and trying to I encourage people to design the end of that experience. In his first book, he actually does a whole kind of retro on our culture and all the way back to kind of Protestants uh, versus Catholic thinking and how our, our exposure to or our avoidance of death, the ultimate end. And his second book is much more, I guess, much more practical for people inside companies to understand how to design for ends, where the first book is why philosophically this is even interesting and important. And I think it's another aspect of our identity as human beings or our way of thinking that I, I think is a, a conversation not being had enough. We talk about we endless growth just can't keep working. Well, so the counter to that is when do things end? When do companies end? When does my leadership end? When does my product and service end? It, it can't just be when we die or fail. What does a graceful ending look like? I think is a really inter- I think it's a very important thing. I know there's a lot of talk about regenerative and circular economies, and I think it's it is a part of that conversation. But he's got some really good articulation of endings and why they're important. I think that's a, could be yeah, very interesting. Yeah, Memento Mori, right? Uh, remember about the death. Remember about the end. Yeah, yeah, and the the fact that different cultures have a different relationship yeah. with this. And, and to your point about existing in liminal spaces different cultures not so much western northern hemisphere ones but different cultures have all had a different relationship with liminal spaces where they would explicitly acknowledge them and make them visible real and celebrated and and a part of life and i think we've hidden away from both endings and the uncertainty of liminal spaces and it's actually antithetical to our thriving Mm. as brian was putting it Thank you for that. Um, so that would be my. I'll look cool. forward to, to, to exploring it. Brian, have you got any recommendations for me? <laughs> I I feel like we've been each successive podcast of late. We're just expanding and expanding everything that we're. Th- <laughs> yeah. So we're 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 moving so far from where we started. In a went through a kind of wobble in in the sense of it felt uncomfortable at the point of realization that it was changing and now we're kind of moving on. I've started, we had another guest where we were talking about regenerative mindset and and, and we started really going into things around emergence and that sort of thing. Some of the work that the RSA is doing, I think, Martin, at the moment is really fascinating. I've started reading more and more. It's like a black hole. Once you go into it, you're, you, it's following Alice. You want to talk about a, a metaverse <laughs> of information. It, it, this it, is, like- it is as, as you go deeper and, and your old world gets smaller behind you and farther away, your, your brain suddenly starts to stretch and morph and expand. And it's, I'm just finding, I'm finding the continued exploration of these topics to be really fascinating. And so each conversation is adding a facet and also adding an edge, introducing us maybe to new edges. Um, So I'm I'm finding that interesting. Some of the work the RSA is doing at the moment is kind of in that space, regenerative design. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting articles and research that they're working Mm -hmm. on that might be interesting. And it kind of explores a lot of this stuff around sustainability and the planet and leadership and economic systems and that sort of thing. So I think that's a good place to to look as well. Yeah, I think those are the kind of spaces within which that leadership identity that you're exploring is going to be operating, if that makes sense. So I think it could be super interesting. Ola, thank you so much for spending this time with us, um, sharing some of your perspectives on how leadership and the identity of leadership is evolving, um, where that's coming from in, in people who, you know, are, are more comfortable in these kind of transitional space and not everybody who has had to go through living through liminal type experiences is comfortable with that. But the importance of it's another layer of understanding as to why inclusivity and diversity is so important. And, and not just a not just an ESG target, if you like. It's actually fundamentally needed for so many levels of reasons, starting with just being humans, good humans. So that's really how can people hear more about what you're doing or connect with you? Maybe find out. About, I don't know whether the research work that you're doing at the moment is public yet, published yet, or whatever. How can people find out a bit more about what you're doing and keep in contact? I think I'm trying to stay away from the 
from the social space. So I think I've limited Fair myself enough. just to LinkedIn. <laughs> so I'm Olagvost, G-W-O-Z-D-Z. So yes, feel free to add me and message me. I have technically finished the kind of um, interview part of my research. But if there is anything or anyone that is burning to share their experience as a leader in the space, then feel free to, to reach out Great. and might just extend that. But Fair. yes, it's, it's an ethnographic-based research, so it's very much immersing myself in, the kind of, in different industries, in different conversations with people to really explore these spaces specifically in digital inclusivity and sustainability. So yes, reach Excellent. out. Wonderful. And thank you both for your questions, for um, inviting me into your liminal space. And I just, as I was listening to you both, <laughs> telling me about your journey, isn't it funny that when you start to go on this quest of creating a, a liminal or talking about liminal space, how it suddenly turns your whole experience, your own experience into the luminous space itself totally. and overturns everything <laughs> that you hoped <laughs> and thought. So it's the irony yeah. of this kind of research work that I'm also part of. Yeah. It's just, I always, I, it comes with a warning, be careful what you're exploring, but because you might just become the main character of your story. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, been happening in certain ways. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to end, Ola. Thank you so, so much. Great. It's been really great talking with you and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Okay, yeah, me too. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Liminal Leaders. We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners, hear feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations, and as always, suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead. And... If you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com. Thank you for listening.